Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And on today's episode, we have a special guest. Let's tune in. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. I'm Sean Richards, joined by Adrian Van Vactor for the next hour to answer your Bible questions. Peter Martin is out doing stuff that God wants him to do, so we'll uh, mock and shame him later. If you would like Mm -hmm. to send us your Bible questions, feel free to do so by email at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like to join us face-to-face, our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com. You click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be sent to our streaming page, where, of course, you can engage with us live, face-to-face, or in a countdown to the next broadcast, where our email address will be spelled out for you at the bottom of the screen. Note as well on the right-hand side of the screen, as well as on Facebook and YouTube, you can leave us chats live with your questions or to message us later through those platforms. YouTube is a reason for hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you give us a like or subscribe there, you'll be notified when we are going live in your respective time zone. But if you'd like to join us uh, through a more reliable venue than the one that doesn't block us for reasons they will explain later, you can join us on our website. They can't block us there yet. So if you, again, have sincere Bible questions, note they are welcome on the broadcast. And noting as well, the usual routine of answering Bible questions will be filled by both of us. But Adrian, your experience as a professional magician and evangelist will also come in handy if you want to know the ins and outs of that industry. Of course, you can't tell us how the tricks are done, but you can provide insight into the occult, the supernatural, and how that is relevant in your shows. Mm -hmm. You aren't uh, channeling uh, familiar spirits, if you will. Mm -hmm. So feel free to send those kind of questions. We're happy to have you. But note as well, we don't want to offer anything apart from what God gives us, so why don't we take a moment to pray and ask Him to bless the broadcast, and you can start sending us your questions. Dad, thank you that we have the honor to be here. We want to invite you to be here as well, not only to equip Adrian and I to speak with your words, but your heart. Protect us from error, enable us with truth, and allow us to be a blessing to you and your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm. Now, as per request by the elder, uh, we were given the opportunity to address a few off screen, of course, uh, of the problem passages in the Old and New Testaments. When the accusation is made, well, the Bible's been changed so many times, how do you know all these errors haven't creeped in and that the Bible is just basically in a conglomeration of error after error? How do we know what the original actually said? We'll be happy to go into the manuscript evidence, but when it comes to the actual passages that we have evidence for questioning, it turns out it's not as big a deal as it's made out to be. So Mm -hmm. in full transparency, believe it or not, we as a pastor and as an evangelist aren't pretending the Bible is free from any questionable passages, but in asking the questions, that also means that we're looking for answers. So to go through a few of them here today, we want to show you what kind of errors are in the Bible so that you are further equipped to not only answer people who challenge you on it, but also know in your own heart and mind, wait, I've been through this, those aren't errors, those are either typos or things that are blown way out of proportion given the evidence we actually have. So for starting 
starting off, uh, want to flip a coin? Do you want to deal with the Old or New Testament first? Well, let's start with the Old Testament. All right, Old Testament. Obviously, it's uh, very old. That is in the <laughs> title and name. But in the passages that we're reading, the, oh, before the Dead Sea Scrolls at least, the manuscript that we provided, our new King James translations and so forth, based on the translations were, were, were called the, uh, what was it, the Masoretic Text. And that was actually more recent than our copies of the New Testament. So the Old Testament was actually the most recent testament, if we're going with manuscript evidence. Mm-hmm. But then when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we actually figured out what the Bible looked yeah, like before the changed, time of Jesus. changed everything as far as skepticism and dating. But the skeptics still brought their questions up, and they still put it forward today because they can live without accountability, but we don't like that. So mm-hmm. in dealing with some of the problem passages, one of my favorites is when they bring up the book of Jeremiah, chapter 27, and I know uh, Peter's uh, grieving the fact he can't be here because Jeremiah is one of his favorite books of the Bible. There's an interesting little typo that appears at the beginning of the passage, and interestingly enough, in my study Bible here. I got the David Jeremiah study Bible right here. It mentions it in a footnote, so we want to go through that and uh, maybe clarify a few things regarding what the error actually is. It says in verse 27, in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiachim, Jehoiakim rather, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, now you read that part and you pretty much just look left and right very briefly and ask, what's the problem? Well, if we go on to note, the conversation wasn't speaking to Jehoiakim, but to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, three more times in the rest of the chapter. So what's going on here? I know we live in the digital age where the test of penmanship was the ability to hit the right key at the right time. We didn't have to either spell things out or didn't have fact check to verify for us whether or not we had copied something accidentally or not. The point, though, being made is this is what is known as a copyist error, that Jehoiachim, Jehoiachim rather, Wait. at the beginning... Error? Error. Proceed. The, the error was in the copying of this passage, not in the original, but in the copying, where he mentioned the wrong king in the first verse, but got it right in the 15 verses prior, and post, I guess, would be the proper Mm -hmm. order of the term. So what's going on here? Well, once again, we have to ask ourselves the question, does this affect our understanding of the Bible? Does it change the information we're given in the Bible historically going forward? And can we actually know what the original intent of Jeremiah Mm -hmm. was if this error crept in over time? Well, in Jeremiah 27, all three answers are very simple to deal with. First of all, what was the original intent of Jeremiah? Well, obviously addressing King Zedekiah, because it goes on to not only say that many more times in the chapter, but in the chapter and of itself, historically we know what was being addressed. This is the odd man out. We notice the error, the typo, if you will, and ask the question, okay, what are the implications of that? There are skeptics who, of course, will make their living going on talk shows and saying, well, this puts the entire Bible into question. Well, meanwhile, we're just raising our hands going, um, no more than when you're writing your manuscript does an editor have to go through and clarify something that was overlooked. 
When we look at the Masoretic text, again, it was copied by a Jewish sect known as the Masoretes, who took their uh, job very seriously, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And when they were handed Scripture, they would take that job with such reverence in writing these things out that when they came across the four-letter abbreviation of the name of God, they would put down their pen, take a ceremonial bath, write the name, and then do it again. Now, you know, in certain sections of the Psalms where the name of the Lord's used like clockwork, that uh, was probably a squeaky clean scribe by the end of the ordeal. But the point being made is this. When they were handed something, they took very, very seriously the job in transmitting that Mm -hmm. information, not necessarily in editing or examining the information. So as these things were copied, that was just it. They were copied. Mm-hmm. And if something came along, like this example in Jeremiah 27, what's the implications of that going forward? Well, pretty much that, that an, a name was essentially misplaced in a chapter, yeah. and the chapter itself clarifies going forward who the actual figure was. Yeah, like confusing 26 with 27 and accidentally using the 26th heading over the 27. Yeah, because the previous chapter was addressing who? You can take a guess. But here's the point. When we're dealing with these sort of errors, what would be the appropriate response? Can we know what the original actually said? Absolutely. This is the odd man out. And what do Bible believers actually believe about inerrancy? When people say, well, the Bible does not have error, we're not saying that the Bible was preserved without error, but that it was preserved. And so you will find copyists errors in the copying process. And what's neat about this whole thing is that we know that there is an error. That is actually an indication that we have a preserved text because we have so many manuscripts. I mean, uh, teachers, rabbis would have marked up some of these scrolls too. And we can see when these scribes, instead of starting over, there are times where you can actually find a Old Testament scroll and you can see where they made a a fix, where they detected an error and they went and corrected it. And you can see the correction. And the only reason that's possible is because we have so many uh, manuscripts to do comparison with. And the number of manuscripts is really important because if you have more copies, does that mean you have more mistakes Mm -hmm. or do you have more opportunities to tell if there's a mistake or not? And in one manuscript alone, the Masoretic text in particular, the one that this was copied off from, we note one mistake that Jehoiachim, or Jehoiakim rather, they're interchangeable, I guess, in the vowel syllables, but Mm -hmm. here's the point. When that error crept in, that typo, we read the whole chapter and we realize, oh, that's what happened. This is what's being addressed, and this mm-hmm. is who's being addressed. Mm-hmm. We don't even need more than one manuscript to tell, oh, someone, I guess, uh, skipped the line, so to speak. And this is the point. If we're going to have to literally build a mountain out of the molehill of what this problem actually is, and this is the best that they have, understand the bad inference that's being made mm-hmm. in the passage. If I assume, okay, a typo exists in the Bible, therefore the Bible is nothing but typos because one can be verified to exist. No, one has been verified to exist, and we know what the original intent was from the rest of the chapter. Clarify that. The second one, and I know 
all of you have this memorized, so you're probably five steps ahead of me here. But in Second Chronicles, I believe it is chapter 9, there is a record of the number of stables that Solomon had, numbering, and of course, the book of First Kings chapter 4 and verse 26, 40,000 which is an impressive number of stables. But in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 9, and verse 25, it says that there were 4,000 stalls of horses. So either there are, well, let me see if I can do the math, 3,600 stalls missing, or this is once again a typo of two zeros, at least in the Babylonian measurement. In Hebrew, if you look up the numbering system and try to take the comparison, it's literally half a line. It would be like mm. the difference between a an upside down Y and an X, essentially. Mm. It would be that small of a detail. So obviously not that big a deal if we can go to Solomon's stables today and dig them up archeologically. We did. We can find out and count just how many horse stalls they were and which one was accurate. But if we look at the addition of two zeros, we have to once again ask, do we know what the original intent was? Are we given false historical information by one or the other? And can we tell when and where this is actually a mistake and what, which one isn't? Well, we can compare it to archaeology. Is it saying that Solomon's stables don't exist because they moved the zero of it? No. Uh, can we say that Solomon, of course, in the record of these things, not, I'm not to accuse for hyperbole or anything like that, but in these records, could we tell or understand how that error would have crept in? Absolutely. And would we also make that verification and say, oh, well, what's the difference then between this being a contradiction in the Bible and a copyist error. Mm -hmm. Well, pretty much that. We compare it to reality. We ask, is the error reasonable, or would it have been deliberately sought out? I don't think so. That would be attributing motive. We can talk about that in a rhetoric lesson in the future if you'd like. Mm -hmm. But the point being made is just that. Are these the sort of things that you're really trying to undermine the Christian faith in? Because let's, and this is, we'll continue this trend into the New Testament as well. If we're cautious, if we're careful, if we say, okay, possibility of error here, let's just take it, throw it out of the Bible entirely. Does the fact that Solomon had horses change from that? Mm. The fact that Solomon had a place to put his horses change from that? No. So if the substance of these errors are in fact this minuscule, this insignificant, this superficial, then you, the objector, the skeptic, have the problem in making mountains out of molehills. Copyist errors are not what we mean by inerrancy, and attacking mm -hmm. a straw man isn't an argument. But here's where we get into the fun stuff. And by fun, I mean for the skeptic, not for us. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 26, and verse 10, if any of you have a preferred version of the Bible, I encourage you to look it up, because you'll see, interestingly enough, some variations in the two ways that it's translated. In Proverbs 26 and verse 10, the New King James Version, my preferred, reads this, The great God who formed everything gives the fool his hire and the transgression or the transgressor, rather, his wages. Now, in the footnotes that you will find in all decent online sources, and hopefully in study Bibles as well, they would make a note, and I'll be reading this from Bible Gateway, that in verse 10, ancient and modern translators differ in the handling of this passage. Now, 
What does that end up looking like in other translations? Well, Bible Hub is a good resource for this, because when you use their resource, they include not just the passage, but they give you access to the Greek, to mm-hmm. the Hebrew, to lexicons and copies, which ones are specified as well. And in these copies and in these variations, you can make the comparison and note when a skeptic, of course, brings these things up, whether the differences are superficial or they aren't. And in Proverbs 26 and 10, this is actually a pretty significant one. For instance, in the New International Version, this is how Proverbs 26 and verse 10 is rendered. Like an archer who wounds at random is one who hires a fool or any passerby. That does not sound like the New King James Version, now does it? It is a very different translation, and the reason is because how it is translated in Hebrew differs very much in two words. Now, when these two words at very interesting points in the passage are translated, it would either make nonsense of the passage or they have to parse it out and try to make sense of it. But when we're talking about this issue, what's actually being spoken about here as far as what this is concerned? An error in the Hebrew or an error in translation? And maybe not even an error, because what at the end of the day is being concluded from this passage? The Hebrew is difficult. Would a Hebrew speaker know what this is talking about? Yes, absolutely. They've known for the years that it's been around. But if on the other hand we ask, would an English speaker know? Well, essentially in the two ways that most translators put it, it's a coin toss. One could be right or the other could be right, but it has to be one or the other based on the handling of the Hebrew words. So if I'm asked the question then, how do you know the entire Bible isn't full of those difficult interpretation Mm -hmm. issues and dilemmas? The answer is, it's not. (laughs) Guess what? This is the only passage in Scripture where that kind of issue bears that kind of influence on the text. We know about it. We're happy to talk about it, and that's the point of emphasis. Now, anything more on the Old Testament or this passage in particular before we go to the New? Well, I think in general, it's just important to realize what Christians are claiming and not claiming when we talk about the Bible being the, the Word of God or inspired or inerrant. And when we talk about inerrancy, we're talking about what God spoke and how copyists make copies and and the fact that we have so many copies to even compare scribal very insignificant mistakes it doesn't it, that's not an argument against the claim that the bible was inspired by god and that the bible was in its original autographs inerrant and what we and, and really what we mean by that so it's really important to if you're if you're taking a skeptical stance to actually deal with the actual claims that Christians make about their faith rather than pointing to, as Sean said, straw man arguments. The idea of a straw man is you're <clears throat> erecting a, a fake version of the actual claim or argument and then attacking that rather than the the actual person. <laughs> and so that's the sort of logical fallacy in that. And so Three things to remember as we talk about this subject of errors, copyist errors, and manuscripts. Um, just real quick background. Uh, <clears throat> three things that we, we look for when we study manuscripts and the preservation of the Bible. And they, I, I like to remember it this way with three simple words. Uh, quality, 
quantity, and time span. So those are the three questions that scholars <laughs> uh, will ask when they're dealing with a text. So first, quality. When you compare all the manuscripts, what is the trend? Do, well, how, how good are these copies? In, in the sense, when you compare them to one another, how much change takes place? Uh, quantity is the next question, and it's how many manuscripts do we have? So the more manuscripts, the better, because when an error does creep into a, a family of texts, so if someone has a copy, and then that copy is made a copy of, and then a copy, and then a copy, if, if you go back to the, you know, let's say generation 109, and that may, there's an error there, every single copy after that will also transmit that error. And so we want to have more and more copies to be able to compare to see where those errors creep in. So the more quantity you have, the better. And then lastly, time span. How much time has passed since the original date of writing, the original autograph, which we do not have in existence, and the first known copy? The shorter the time spans, the better, meaning, in generally speaking, meaning that <clears throat> there's less time for mistakes to have crept in that we cannot detect because we don't have any manuscripts to compare one another to to see if there was a, a copyist error. So quality, quantity, time span, and you will see time and time again as we go through some of these uh, different texts where there is some issues, some, some questions, uh, that, that, that by and large the Bible stands apart from all other texts of history, having the best quality, the best quantity, and the best time spans than anything ever written in human history, especially when you compare the New Testament to other pieces of ancient literature from that time. The, the, the New Testament, there's no comparison uh, as far as that's concerned. All right. Now, going to the New Testament, I'll make notes of comparisons, and we'll get out to your questions. Uh, this is a fun one. In John 5, 4, it's noted, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, this, of course, in its proper context, was explaining the superstition that a lame man was trying to get into said water before everyone else. This verse goes on to explain why he adopted that position, then Jesus comes along and heals him anyway. Now, here's the interesting part about this. That isn't a question passage as far as being translated differently. It doesn't even necessarily record false information. The reason why it's questionable by some people is because it fails that standard of being early. We don't have it in a lot of our earlier copies. There's space for it, but obviously manuscripts that are a thousand plus years old are going to have blotch marks and so forth. We don't mm -hmm. have a lot of evidence for it that is early. We have evidence for it. That's why it's in our Bible. Mm -hmm. But when they look at it, and some skeptics, or not skeptics, scholars, but who's counting, uh, make the claim this was probably a commentator's footnote of the scribe writing the text to explain this detail, and then it was confused as a verse and copied in. That's when the skeptics jump in and say, well, how do you know the whole Bible wasn't just a bunch yeah. of commentators notes? Obviously, that's ridiculous. We actually have evidence for this. The point being made, though, is let's be overzealous. Let's remove it entirely. Does it change the fact that Jesus healed the yeah. man? Does it change the fact that the man was at a pool of water that Pastor Scott got hit by a rock in the head by, by the way? And <laughs> on it goes. No. 
Obviously, this doesn't change the passage. We don't lose anything by removing it or gain anything significantly by including it. The question isn't conflicting evidence. It's a lack of one of three kinds of evidence, the first two of which we have plenty. So note that point. In 1 John chapter 5, we see a similar detail. In verse 8, this doesn't appear in a lot of early manuscripts, and the earliest manuscript it appears in wasn't the best one, Mm -hmm. but we'll be transparent about that too. It says, And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. These three agree as one. Now, you may have read that passage before and go, oh, there's a good proof text for the Trinity there. Well, anti-Trinitarians will say, well, see, there's problem passages here, manuscript variants. This isn't in a lot of the early manuscripts. How do you know the Trinity wasn't just introduced to the Bible later on? Mm -hmm. A, where and when, show your evidence, not your assertion. But B, if I, and if you've watched this broadcast at any length of time when the Trinity came up, provide proof text for the Bible, I'm aware of the fact this has controversy behind it and go out of my way to avoid it. If I'm going to define the Trinity, I can do so just from the Old Testament, and not in any problem passages, by Mm -hmm. the way. So with that then in mind, what is the issue with this passage? The same as John 5, 4. Do I have early manuscript evidence? No. Do I have good manuscript evidence? Kind of. Do I have enough manuscript evidence to put it in the Bible? Absolutely. But the point being made is this. Let's be careful. Let's be overzealous and remove it from our Bibles. Does the doctrine of the Trinity change? Not even slightly. Nor do the the primary arguments for the Trinity. Just because you have one that mentions three may have read differently in other manuscript copies doesn't mean that the entire doctrine as a whole is now being negated and we should just throw it out. No, that's we, we didn't arrive. If we arrived at such a monumental doctrine like the doctrine of the Trinity, the very nature of God from one passage, I don't think that there would be uh, a unanimous agreement from Christian history that the Trinity is what the Bible teaches. <laughs> yeah, we consider it a non-negotiable, and that's not because, well, this one problematic passage mm-hmm. suggests three and one in agreement. No, it's because it's everywhere, and missing one passage that alludes to it is not an issue. Yeah. Having controversy around a passage is not an issue, mm. and having skeptics make false assumptions because of this passage is also not an issue. In fact, many New Testament scholars argue that the fact that there are these kinds of debates proves and shows that these are historical documents. If you had something that was too perfect, that stands out in history, then either something supernatural took place, which I guess could be an argument for that, or someone was cheating. (laughs) Someone's lying and making it up, and these documents aren't as old as they say they are, because that's not how history is transmitted. And so, and another thing to keep in mind is that these problem passages are not a mystery. If you just have an ordinary, everyday study Bible where they have footnotes, you can see a lot of times it'll tell you exactly what happened. For example, with this passage, uh, I'm looking at the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I just picked that one because I actually like that translation. Uh, just it's fun to read, and 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 it, uh, it's I think it's a good translation for general, you know, just general reading. But uh, it says right in the footnote that verse uh, chapter five, verses seven and eight. It says other manuscripts, uh, a, a few late ones read, testify in heaven the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. 
and there are three who bear witness on earth. And so it tells you right in the text what the issue is. And the reason scholars have debates on, there's sort of two camps. There are, there's the one camp that says, well, the oldest is the best, even if it's a fragment, that's the one we go with. And then there are others who say, well, not necessarily. Uh, that fragment could have been an error, and that the, the other argument is that the majority of the manuscripts, which are much later, that's why they call it the majority text. Uh, there's a, the more, the further you go in time into the future from the original date of writing, the larger the quantity of manuscripts you get, and the more languages. If you go further back, closer to the date of writing, we have fewer and fewer manuscripts to the point where you may have just one fragment or a a, a whole, maybe a, a really whole copy of a a, a text, and and so. Uh, there are those who say, well, let's stick with the majority text. And then there are those, let's just stick with the earliest one. If the earliest one contradicts the majority of them, we're going to just throw out those versions and stick with that early, early one. And we kind of take the, the, the side of, well, let's, let's look at both and not throw out one or the other and just say, we're not quite sure. I mean, it, one way or the other, but, but how does this impact our theology or doctrine. And if it really doesn't make any difference, which most of the time it doesn't, then we just kind of shrug and go, well, I guess we'll all find out someday. <laughs> but it doesn't change the definition of our faith. So here's the point right. that's being Nor made. does it change our beliefs about inerrancy and inspiration as far as the Bible being God's revelation to humanity. Okay. Now, uh, one last one before we get to the questions is, of course, the infamous long ending of Mark. In Mark chapter 16, big one. this is a, yeah, big not necessarily in significance, but big as far as length. Verses yeah. 9 through 20 don't appear in early manuscripts. Mm -hmm. You're noticing there's a common trend in New Testament objections. Uh, I can blame Domitian for that. But the point being made is this. When we're talking about verses 9 through 20, there are good manuscripts and early manuscripts that have this entirely absent from the Gospel of Mark. And so the question is leveled by skeptics and saying, well, the Gospel of Mark post that is introducing all this new information about Jesus. How do you know it just wasn't a progressive idea of Jesus resurrecting from the dead? Well, let's read the first eight verses. And I want to do this to be thorough because the objection doesn't even stand on its own two feet. Mm -hmm. But note this point that's being made. The objection is, well, what if more details were just added on? Early Christians just made up and developed this myth, despite them all going to their brutal grisly deaths. Let's pretend that didn't happen. And, of course, reject all of modern history and consistent textual criticism. Let's read Mark 16, 1 through 8, and note if it stops at verse 8, if this is a coherent passage. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Jesus had been buried for three days. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, Sunday, they or Monday, or yes, Sunday, excuse me, uh, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. So already interesting phenomena, because that stone was not a pebble. And entering the tomb, they saw the, a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he, the man in the uh, robe, said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter 
that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, full stop there, is this a coherent story? Well, as far as the doctrine of Christianity goes, I think it's enough, because what do we have? We have the empty tomb, (laughs) the greatest evidence for Jesus' resurrection, historically and archaeologically, that we have in existence. Secondly, we have an angel, or at least a young man, let's just grant that, appearing, having moved, uh, I guess by himself, a multiple-ton stone to expose said absence of Jesus after enduring a full Roman crucifixion with women, hostile witnesses, that's in the substance of the Mm -hmm. manuscript of the argument itself, as the first eyewitnesses of this event. But if it comes full stop of them just going out, why would they share this information? If not, according to even atheist scholars like James D.Z. Dunn, Bart Ehrman, and many others, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 documents everything in the long ending Mm -hmm. of Mark, that Jesus appears to them individually and in groups, over the 40-year or 40-year, 40-day period of time between that and Pentecost. And what was the point of all of that? Well, given the information that we actually have, what is the only problem? We don't have a early, early copy of the long ending of Mark. We have it in some of our complete manuscripts. We have it even in some of our best manuscripts. But in the early ones, those who mm-hmm. would mince those details, like Adrian was talking about, we don't have it, therefore the assertion is it never existed. It was introduced as a fabrication later. Well, let's well, that's that's a that's a conclusion that's also an assumption. Yeah, <laughs> added as a fabrication. Well, there are other historical accounts. Even if we grant that it was an addition, not a redaction, then. Um, it's easy to understand why later on a scribe would say, well, let's complete the story just for the readers because we all know how the story ends because we already know how the story ends. And is there any information in Mark 16, 9 through 20 that would conflict with any of the other eyewitness accounts? Exactly, and it doesn't, correct. It doesn't, there's no contradiction. And so if Mark did in fact end there, it'd be easy to understand. There's even some early church fathers who were skeptical about the passage being in the original Gospel of Mark. But it's also quoted by other early church fathers as well. So, uh, you know, there is, it isn't really a problem if you look at the whole story or the whole context of what's going on. All right, so let's go with what we actually know. If the passage is short, it doesn't make sense, but it doesn't conflict with any actual Christian doctrine. We have the declaration of Jesus' resurrection, the evidence of it, and it being presented to women. That's enough to make a historical Mm -hmm. case. According to the atheist's own standards, the Jesus Seminar, which was publicized and held by people so far on the left of the spectrum, they are about to fall off the meter. They said that 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7, Jesus appearing to eyewitnesses individually and in groups, was a tradition that was shared audibly as well as uh, physically in writing among Christians within months mm-hmm. of the first Easter. And note that point, because the Gospel of Mark, according to the skeptics, would date at the latest to around 67 AD, at the earliest around 40. Yeah, right. And, and we don't know these copyists, we don't know what their biases were. I mean, on the surface, it makes sense that if the Gospel of Mark ended prior to these resurrection appearances in the, the part of the text, it would make sense why later Christians would include it as because it it contains all the post-resurrection storylines uh, of 
for the whole gospel. But it, it, and it makes less sense for an early Christian to redact it from the original unless one of those copyists, those early copyists, was a skeptic and said, well, I'm not going to include that. I just want to talk about the stories, and I'm going to exclude the part that... What if it was a, a Jewish skeptic? And so there are a lot of possibilities that can go in favor for going ahead and excluding it from our belief that it was included in the original, or, inc- I mean, we don't know. That's the big issue. <clears throat> assumptions upon assumptions, inferences mm-hmm. upon inferences. It's all coming from a worldview, not from the evidence. What do we actually know? That the long ending of Mark doesn't in- introduce any new information that wasn't being circulated by Christians at this time, mm-hmm. that atheists and Christians alike look at this time period and ask what information was circulated about Jesus. They would say nothing is fabricated in the long ending of Mark. If we look at later manuscript evidence, we say complete reason to have coherency and harmony between the Gospels. And if we look at the unanimous opinions of those who will actually examine this text, they say the reasons to which you're coming to that conclusion, Mm -hmm. let's just pretend. And again, notice we've been allowing that. Let's just pretend Mark's long ending is out of there. Does that change Matthew? Does that change Luke? Does that change John? Does that right. change First Correct. Corinthians? Yeah, does, does that not. change Acts? Yeah. Does that change anything? Yeah. No. And, so. and realize this: that you know, the claim is this is the claim of the skeptic that the stories about Jesus, the Jesus of faith, are legend, and that we need to separate the Jesus of history from the Jesus of faith. That these are two different people. And uh, what's the basis for this? And it's these kinds of arguments that people build up these cases, which are, you know, again, like straw man arguments. Historians usually maintain that it takes over 100 years, sometimes 150 years, for a historical event to be made, to, to uh, evolve into legend. And this is where we actually start finding some of the Gnostic Gospels. These are all written 150 years after the events that took place. Wait till For example, the original the, eyewitnesses were dead. Yeah, when you have all the eyewitnesses and their disciples gone, um, then you have legend. It, it, I, I sometimes will use this illustration. I'll say, imagine if I could somehow snap my fingers and make every video clip and every photograph of the 9-11 attack disappear. And then I was to go on a lecture tour explaining how UFOs came down and zapped, laser beams zapped, the Twin Towers, and caused, and it wasn't airplanes, it was UFOs, and, and, but somehow I was able to snap my fingers and magically make every film, every photograph, even the, the articles that were written at the time, and, uh, and just go around doing that. Could I get away with that today? The answer is a huge no. Why? Because you're not speaking to Muslims or conspiracy <laughs> theorists. Because the eyewitnesses who were there are still alive. I could never get away with fabricating stories about the 9-11 attacks because eyewitnesses are still alive. Even little kids who are now young adults were there and saw these events and can say, no, I did not see any UFOs or laser beams. And so if I were to go 100 years from now, 150 years from now, then we could see if if we erased erased all evidence, uh, all historical evidence. And that's what happens with the Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, where you hear uh, stories of Jesus, uh, Peter asking Jesus, how do women go to heaven? And he goes, well, if a woman will become a man, then they can go to heaven. That's right 
write it in the Gospel of Thomas, ridiculous things that not only contradict what is in the New Testament, but God contradict the character of Jesus and things that he would never say based on how he treated women. So you can quickly see that this is legend. And if we didn't have anything else about the life of Jesus, then it could be easy to understand why the belief about Jesus would come from the Gospels of like Thomas. But when historians say, oh, we, we're, you know, we're excluding all these other Gospels, they're, they're completely not only uh, ignoring, but blatantly dis- misleading others that we should include these later Gospels because they're just as valid as the Gospels that we have in our, in our Bibles. Uh, they're they're basically lying to you, saying that oh well, it's a, they're equal. No, we have manuscript yeah, I, evidence that places these within the eyewitness generation. Yeah, you can have a Reddit blogger who's just passing off stuff he watched late night on the Discovery Channel. I can give him that much grace. Mm-hmm. But if a scholar presents himself as an authority of this area and says that without fingers crossed behind yeah. the back of his head, they're, he is lying. They're just misleading you. Yeah, and also note the Gospel of Thomas. We could know that's a lie because the cover page is a mm-hmm. lie. Thomas had been dead for 80 years when it was written, so that would be uh, <laughs> hard. But with that being said, uh, in all sense and good humor, we've gotten a little bit scholarly on all of you, but hopefully it's been edifying. A little bit more of a light-hearted note. We got a question from Yari about an individual, I won't mention their name, but uh, they're coming out with this teaching that the reason why women need to cover their heads is because the Nephilim could still be out there. Uh, What uh, do you think we should say to someone who would promote that kind of teaching? I'll let uh, a certain cartoon character do that for me. Oh, wait, uh, hold on here. Missed the opportunity, but nonetheless, I think it'll hit home. That's it, mister. You just lost your brain privileges. <laughs> I would uh, put that right where it belongs. Don't okay. follow that person anymore, Yari. That's very weird. Mm. If you have questions about the Nephilim, though, feel free to do so. We love it. Uh, here's a question from Dwayne. Speaking of people deliberately lying, he wants to know what our thoughts are on the Roe versus Wade decision to ban abortion. There is no such thing. It does not ban abortion. It gives rights back to the states. For those of you listening internationally, mm. this is concerning the mm. rescinding of the Roe versus Wade United States. State Supreme Court decision where it was made an international yeah. law. From a judicial but, point of view, it was a horrible decision in the first place. The original Roe v. Wade case, it was horribly decided. It was the worst piece of judicial work in the history of the United States of America. <laughs> yeah, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is not a conservative or Republican, did not uh, share that exact sentiment. So mm. when we're talking about this yeah. issue, make sure that you're not letting headlines and scare tactics and people deliberately lying to and, you. And those who argue to, to not have changed it, well, we've gone this long and it seems to be okay. Let's just keep it there. But sure enough, there are states who go, no, we think that uh, abortion is murder and we don't want the federal government telling us what we can and can't pass legislatively in our state. So what the Supreme Court did is simply say, it's not for us to decide because the Constitution simply does not address the issue. It it should not be decided by us. It should be decided by the legislature on a state-by-state level. And also note, to tie this back into the purpose of the show, why we would bring it up at all, mm-hmm. is because we as Christians need to have a love for the truth, which also means a legitimate hatred for lies. Now, this does mean that we hate people who lie, but we do, in fact, dislike it when reality is misrepresented, especially to manipulate people. For Christians to have a love for the truth, how is that most appropriately demonstrated? When it comes to our desire and our passion to know what is true, what are some yeah. things we should always default to? 
Well, we should always, uh, you mean far as our, our, our love for the truth, what should we yeah. do practically to make sure we're not buying into these lies? Well, we always want to make sure that we test all things. It doesn't matter what area of life it is in. Now, of course, when it comes to our eternal soul, there's a lot more uh, level of importance in making sure that we do test all things. I don't want to practice worship and believe things about my, my spiritual life that are not true. And so like, when we talk about things like worldview, uh, why, why would I want to say, oh, we're all basically the same thing, when fundamentally, if I, if I actually test all things and know that all world religions fundamentally contradict one another, and if you have contradictions, they all can't be true in the same sense and at the same time. Just, that's just a logical uh, fact. They can't all be true because they fundamentally contradict one another. Why would I just pick one blindly and say, well, I hope they're right and, and not do my due, due diligence? And, and for us as believers, we want to do that in every area of life. We want to be, it's called being honest and truthful. And if we catch ourselves being dishonest, we want to deal with that. I've had times in my own life where I realized I was believing a lie or I was misbehaving and I was confronted about it. And I was like, you know, you're right. I got it. I have to. So it ha has to do with humility as well. You know, it's okay to not know. But in not knowing, it's important to say, but I'm going to find out because this is important. And it's, it's really just about having a genuine integrity when it comes to facts and truth and, and claims. And whether it's political or relational, we want to have those same types of attitudes uh, throughout life because we'll be, it'll make us better people and it'll help, help us build better communities. So let us know if that's clear, Dwayne. Again, full empathy. I know that they uh, have a lot of power to silence any information mm -hmm. apart from what they want, but <clears throat> make sure that when we're talking about this issue that we're actually talking about the issue, not not the issue. And, and, and there's a lot of rhetoric around this, this, this subject, this topic, that is very misleading, which is very disappointing. You know, if someone would just come right out and say, you know what, I don't believe that a five-week-old child... I'm talking pre-born five-week-old child, because it's a child, and it has existed for five weeks. So when I heard my firstborn son's heartbeat, he was five weeks old, meaning that he did not exist five weeks prior to that moment, and I heard his heartbeat, okay? When I heard that, I burst into tears realizing that I had a human life. Now, there are some people who believe that he was not a living person, that he was not a human being. He was just a clump of living cells and the heartbeat was just a mechanical function and that it wasn't any different than uh, a liver or a kidney and that if it's if it's something that i want to discard then i should be able to do that but they won't be that honest if they if they were to say that then people would realize wow that's a kind of a horrendous view um, and so they use things like, well, uh, I, we, we're, you're taking a woman's right to health care. What? Or you're taking away my choice. Wait, what do you mean taking away your choice? Um, babies don't spontaneously appear inside of wombs. We know that that's not true. We know that choices were already made that brought up the life of this child and now you're regretting that choice and now the life you've already been you've already chosen to create by by the nature of the decisions you already made with very very few exceptions less than one percent of the time we're talking you know forced 
when women when women are raped and incest and sort of that sort of thing. But <clears throat> the rhetoric is very misleading and it's very dishonest. You know, if we wanted to have an open, honest dialogue about this issue, at honest. least come right out and say, I just don't believe it's a living being, and here's why I think it is a living being, and we can go from there. But the rhetoric that happens in the media and when people talk about this issue, just remember. <clears throat> be open and honest and be truthful about what you're actually saying. We're not talking about women's choice. We're talking about what do you do when a person is faced with an unwanted pregnancy of a human being? What is the right thing to do? That's what really this is about. And then how we handle it as a society is a separate issue. And that's what the Supreme Court decided is that, hey, this is this really should be decided on a legislative level, level on a state-to-state -state basis. The Constitution doesn't really, well, I think the Constitution does address it, but... <laughs> And we biblically, can <laughs> we can talk about that as well. Feel free to ask, but just note, we should have a love for the truth as Christians yeah. because we serve a God of truth. Sorry, I had to get on my little soapbox for a minute. <laughs> I understand you're invested in the matter. You have three kids. Uh, here's well, a question. Just, my twins were born premature, about five and a half, six weeks. There are states that it was legal, and I, I mean, when they were born, they were crying, they felt pain, they were, they were people. And I could have five minutes prior say, eh, they're just kidneys, and let's just get rid of them. I, to me, that is the most, I mean, personally, it's, well, I, I just think it's the most evil, heinous thing that a human being could ever do, and just to discard human life. When people talk about uh, racism or how we take different um, groups of people and how they're marginalized and how, how horrible that is, and then can turn around and say, oh, well, it's just a vestigial organ, um, it's a leech, it's just sucking my resources, and I'm, I'm not responsible to take care of it. I'm going to get rid of it because it's not a full-fledged person. You've got some answers. You've got some major contradictions to deal with. <laughs> All right. Question from Isaiah, who uh, listened to an individual. doesn't have to mention his name. But uh, went on to say, if you don't keep the Ten Commandments, you don't go to church on Sunday, then Jesus won't let you into his house in heaven when you die. And everyone said amen. Well, majority opinions are relevant. But uh, is it true that if you don't go to church, you're going to hell? And of course, that is false. Let's just start with some fundamentals. When the Bible cautions people against neglecting the gathering together of each other, the author of Hebrews has some of the most probably frightening language as far as people not taking their salvation for granted, that's not one of those passages. In fact, the only reason he exhorts people, and you can read this again in the book of Hebrews, it says to exhort one another daily as we see the day approaching. It's meant to be a positive, not a threat. Mm -hmm. That then being said, if we equate this with salvation, then we need to ask in salvation, are there wiggle room footnotes for salvation to include, if I don't do this, if this is what salvation is, then if I don't do this, does that make sense? Well, let's start with the fundamentals. This is Romans chapter 3 and verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by his attendance at church. That's what it said. Oh, wait, what? No, it doesn't. <laughs> it says a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Same book, next chapter, in verse 5, it says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, mm -hmm. his faith, not his church attendance, <clears throat> is reckoned or recognized as righteousness. And in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, it notes that a man is not justified by the works of the law, 
but through faith in Jesus Christ. As well attended or as manipulative as individuals may be who would want to encourage good things by threatening them with hellfire, and you see this any which way, Uh, people who don't go out and share their faith, your salvation is illegitimate. What's the goal there? I want you to start sharing your faith. Mm -hmm. Good thing. You're not saved if you don't do this good thing bad. That's called false teaching. Mm-hmm. If we want to, yeah, if we want to take this approach of the end justifies the means, again, it ties into the other issue. We should have a love for the truth, not to have the mindset of, mm-hmm. if I get people to do good things, God will reward mm-hmm. the results. No, God cares about the means by which you achieve that as well. If you're listening to a teacher that's playing fast and loose with that, then by all means, call him out on it. Hopefully he'll mm-hmm. repent, but also note as well, and be sensitive to this, note the fruit. God's not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. There is a place for godly fear, to not take your salvation for granted. Mm -hmm. But if people are willing to literally dangle you over hell as the only way to get you moving, it shows the terms of your relationship Mm -hmm. with God are only on the basis of fear rather than love. And this is, uh, again, a point that Peter made last night. We shouldn't be people that are driven by hate or driven by fear or even driven by the pursuit of pleasure. We should be driven by our pursuit of Jesus, seeing him as better Mm. than anything else that we could be doing. Now, I'm not raising my hand, and Adrian, I assume, won't be in a few more seconds. If I were to say that in every area of my life, I'm living it out the way Jesus would want me to be, ideally, I can't raise my hand. But if, on the other hand, I ask, what is my metric of spiritual growth? It's not my church attendance any more than that's my metric for salvation. It starts and ends with Scripture because that's the best mm-hmm. thing we got. And if the biblical authors didn't use these arguments to get people to church, then we shouldn't either. No, and that's the whole point. So if you're, again, hearing from people or being taught by people or know people that are being taught by people, caution them. Bring them back to the mm-hmm. truth. Show them, okay, how did you get saved? Was it because you went to church or did you get saved after you went to church, because if church attendance is Mm -hmm. what saves you, everyone who goes through a particular building is, in fact, going to heaven, but that's not the case. And and there's a long list of practices in the Christian faith, in the Christian Christendom that that fall into this category. What one of my mentors, Andre Cole, would often call the Robin Hood's Hood syndrome. He had a personal visit. He was interviewing Benny Hinn uh, because teacher, Andre Cole, you know, he's an illusionist. I'm an illusionist, and uh, by nature, we're a little skeptical, especially when people make miracle claims, because we're sort of in a slightly better vantage point of detecting deception. If someone is using natural means to create a supernatural effect to deceive people into thinking that a miracle took place or that they have supernatural powers, we're in a slightly better position to detect that deception because that is the art form that we've trained ourselves to learn about. And so uh, Benny Hinn agreed and admitted that, yes, many, if not all, the healings that he claimed were taking place during his quote-unquote crusades and services were placebos, meaning people experienced uh, a relief in symptoms, but no healing actually took place. He said, what difference does it make? People's faith is being strengthened by believing that God is miraculously healing people to the extent that Benny Hinn and his ministry had been claiming. And the reason why Andre Cole called that the Robin Hood syndrome is that the desired outcome is actually good. People going to church is good. People ought to go to church. A um, good church. People having faith in a supernatural God is good. However, Robin Hood having 
provided for the poor is good. But the reason he called it the Robin Hood syndrome is that stealing is still bad. Lying to people and knowing you're lying is bad. Well, and even if even if the desired outcome is a positive, we don't get there by lying or being deceptive or manipulative. All right. And then I think we can finish with this one. We got about two minutes. Yari has a follow through after the head covering thing. Uh, Why is it that Paul mentioned angels in comparison to women regarding this topic of head coverings? Thank you. Again, for the sake and brevity of time, remember he was speaking of a cultural issue and noting that head coverings was to cover the fact women who are now coming to a relationship with God had shaved their heads. They were looking like how their culture viewed prostitutes. The head covering, though, was noting, and I'll just read the passage here, Let me start in verse 8. It says, For man is not from woman, but woman from man. This is in reference to original creation. Nor is man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Don't stop there. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent from woman, nor woman independent from man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man comes through woman, but all things are from God. What's being talked about here is the symbol of authority. If God created us, and you can verify this in Hebrews 1 that also mentions the angels as under God but over man, this order of creation isn't to demean our value and substance, it's to note positions and roles. And if the purpose of woman is not just to bring men into this world, but was created as a helper to man, recognizing that authority is the same model that the Son submits to the Father through in the relationship, not because he's an inferior God or should be oppressed, but because out of love he submits to the Father's authority. Likewise, woman was created to model that picture. Now, if we ask them the question, well, aren't people going to abuse this? Yeah, but does that mean that the truth statement within it is in fact invalid? The answer is no. The order of creation was intentional, and God is the one through whom authority is determined and recognized. And if all men acted like God, then I assume all women wouldn't have a problem also acting like God and submitting to that authority. God bless you. Thank you all for listening here today. Adrian, thank you for filling in for Peter. My pleasure. We look forward to seeing him again on Tuesday and you hopefully in the near future. Uh, Also, Pastor Scott will be joining us tomorrow. Look forward to that. Feel free to send us your questions in the meantime. God bless you. We'll see you all again next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.